2: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore and I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line today by Dr. Michael Farmer. He's an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how are things? Good, Nathan. And also on the line today uh, is David Grubbs. He's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Uh, Grubbs, are you ready to rock and roll?
0: Ready as I'll ever be.
2: Well, friends, today uh, we're starting a trilogy. You remember uh, last uh, spring, which, you know, in the academic world, March is last year, even though on the calendar it's not. Uh, we did a three part series on George Lindbeck, a theological giant uh, who had died earlier this year. I made a request of my friends, Michael and David, could we do another? theological giant trilogy, but this time on James Cone, who died earlier this year. They graciously agreed. I then contacted Dr. Adam Clark. He's a professor of theology at Xavier University in Cincinnati, asking him uh, which of his books uh, should we read. Uh, Dr. Clark is a scholar of uh, Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King and of the Civil Rights Movement more generally, and he recommended this title, God of the Oppressed, so that's what we're going to jump into today um guys what's going on on the uh, christian humanist radio network
1: i think i think uh sectarian review has an episode about independent bookstores
2: yep they do indeed uh any other trying to think did city of man have a uh, yes they did they had an episode on the kavanaugh hearings did they not which
1: by the time this episode goes out that one will be unfortunately out of date which is what happens when you have a show that covers current events
2: Yes, indeed. Any other uh, happenings on the network? I feel like there was a uh, Profiles interview that Carla Ewart did um, on women's ordination, but I can't remember the author or the title.
1: I don't remember either, I'm afraid. Sorry, Carla.
0: Kristen Padilla's uh, book, Now That I'm Called.
1: That is the one. There you go.
2: Well, at any rate, listeners, uh, now we're actually going to jump into uh, the Cone book. Uh, Michael, in this book's introduction, Cohn sets forth the need for a specifically black theology with liberation as its main concern and with specifically black methods governing its progress. So normally I ask Grubbs to do the historical context, but this is John Updike territory, not John Gower. So what about America in 1975 and specifically the theological world in 1975 make this kind of a project intelligible?
1: I can't really answer a question about the Theological Theological Academy, so I'm going to let you do that one. But I can tell you some broader cultural context for sure. Uh, I'll take it. As everybody knows, the Civil Rights Movement starts happening in the 50s. It leads up to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That act outlaws racial discrimination, also religious and gender discrimination. Uh, It's difficult to enforce uh, at first, but it really is a real victory for the Civil Rights Movement that being said, uh, oppression of people of color obviously did not end in 1964. There's a lot of work left to be done. There's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, So the nonviolent marches and protests that characterize the early part of the 1960s, they continue on to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, an act that essentially enforces the 14th and 15th amendments, which is the, the 14th Amendment gives slave citizenship and the 15th Amendment gives them the right to vote. Poll taxes are finally eliminated in ni- 1966. It takes until 1966 for poll taxes to be eliminated, believe it or not. In July 1966, there is what's called the White House Conference on Civil Rights. This is a, a group of people getting together at LBJ's request and talking about housing, education, justice for racial minorities, that sort of thing. And one fruit of that conference is that in 1968, the Fair Housing Act makes it illegal to deny housing to someone based on race. None of those things, it's important to note, just happened to come about. None of them came about because white people were so gracious that they just decided to do it. All of this is brought about by black activism and thus uh, thus relevant, I think, to, uh, to what we're talking about here. Uh, And in addition to that, the violence also continued. So Martin Luther King is assassinated on April 4th, 1968. Um, He is working for the bargaining rights of Memphis sanitation workers at the time. Malcolm X was assassinated a few years before that in 1965 by members of the Nation of Islam. Uh, And maybe most important for our purpose is that in June 1966, this guy named James Meredith undertook what he called a march against fear. And the plan was he was going to walk from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi to protest continued Southern racism. And he's going to do so even though doing something like that and especially doing something like that in a very publicized way, as he did, puts his life in jeopardy, right? On the second day of this march, he is shot by a white sniper. He's not he wasn't killed. In fact, uh, Meredith is still alive, but he was hospitalized. And it's this event that leads Stokely Carmichael um, to give the so-called black power speech in which he says, among other things, the only way we're going to stop them white men from whooping us is to take over. What we're going to start saying now is black power. And I'm sorry for the outrageously white way that I said that, but I figured it would be better than doing an impression of Stokely Carmichael. Uh, and, and I bring up Carmichael both because Cone mentions him several times in the first few chapters of this book, and also because he, he demonstrates a really important shift in uh, African American social activism. Carmichael begins as a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. At, he's, he's one of the freedom riders. But eventually, he comes to see nonviolence as a tactic rather than as a principle, and thus something not inviolable, as it were. He gradually becomes more radical and he becomes influenced by Malcolm X and Saul Alinsky. And in 1967, he publishes a book called Black Power, The Politics of Liberation, in which he recommends coming up with entirely new structures for society rather than seeking the integration of black people into existing American life. And that marks him in in political parlance as a radical because he wants to remake society rather than rehabilitating it. He explicitly in that book criticizes the NAACP if that helps you position him in terms of black activism uh, in the 60s. So what happens after this in the late 1960s and early 1970s is the rise of two movements that are closely connected, the Black Power Movement and the Black Arts Movement. Both of those peak in the early 1970s, and both of them are heavily influenced by the notion of black separatism. That is not integration, but a society run by black people, either in parallel to white society or in a different country or whatever. The Black Panther Party... um, is the political face of that movement. And, and they have a 10 point program, which I'll rehearse here because I think it really shows you the sorts of things that people in this movement, which with which I, I think it's safe to associate Cohn uh, were seeking. So 10 points. Number one, they want the freedom to determine what the black community should look like. So white people shouldn't get to decide how black society is structured or the sorts of things they should be interested in. Two, they want full African-American employment. Uh, three, they want, quote, an end to the robbery by the white men of our black community, which, which means that ultimately this is a critique of capitalism uh, in addition to a critique of, of various racist attitudes and structures. Four, they want uh, sufficient and sufficiently advanced housing. Five, an education that takes black history and black psychology into account. Six, they want black men to be exempt from the draft, which still existed when they, when they penned this. Seven, they want an end to police brutality. Eight, they want black people released from prison and jails. And I'm not sure if they want all black people released from prison and jails or just particular types of offenders. But Uh, nine, they want black criminal defendants to be judged by a jury of their peers, which I take to mean an all black or black majority jury. And then finally, quote, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. That is the platform of the Black Panther Party. And it's worth pointing out they are perfectly willing to use violence in service of those goals, rather famously. The Black Arts Movement, I I don't know that this is an entirely accurate thing to say, but I would call it the artistic arm of the Black Power Movement in a lot of ways. It is set off by the assassination of Malcolm X in February 1965, and it encourages Black ownership of magazines, journals, publishing houses, and, and black people to create work that centers on the black experience and the black imagination. And its most famous figure is almost certainly Amiri Baraka, who was born, born Leroy Jones and who wrote um, some really remarkable original poetry in the, uh, in the early 1970s. Does that give enough background? I feel like I talked for a long time for me.
2: No, that's a very good background for uh, what Cone is about here just a a brief comment on the Theological Academy of the time, I mean, it is still, uh, at least in mainline seminaries, you know, the realm of sort of classical liberal theology, Uh, christianhumanist.org readers, if you read uh, Michael's and my series on The Principles of Christian Theology by uh, John McQuarrie, uh, it gives a pretty good picture of, you know, this universalizing, Uh, you know, rooted in a a common, or in a notion of a common universal human experience. Uh, Set against that is Bardianism, which is, you know, in its heyday, arguably there in the, you know, mid to to late 20th centuries, uh, which insists on a very particular and a very objective, so in other words, coming from somewhere other than the individual experience source for faith, And then, you know, you got the rise uh, at Union Seminary of two just remarkable figures. Uh, One of them, James Cone, who publishes a, um, A Black Theology of Liberation. I had to make sure I got those words in the right order. And then Gustavo Gutierrez, who publishes A Theology of Liberation, History, Politics, and Salvation, one in 1970 and the other in 1971. And these two books really hit the Theological Academy hard. Uh, it's this notion that you know any attempt to start from a universal human experience uh, is itself a form of colonialism. Uh, it's very much borrowing the notion from Karl Marx, which we'll dig into at some length as we discuss this book, uh, that material conditions uh, actually form the structure uh, upon which human experience is intelligible. Uh, It's probably an even stronger statement than that, but that's how I tend to understand it. Uh, So when Cone writes this book in 75, there have already been uh, several years uh, in which those members of the sort of white, liberal, mainline theological establishment have critiqued him pretty heavily. And in a lot of ways, God of the Oppressed is a response to those critiques as much as it is an advancement of a new position. Now, other 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 places in the theological world, of course, you have the rise of some new and you know more conservative uh, theological traditions. Uh, my own seminary, Emmanuel School of Religion, which is now Emmanuel Christian Seminary, uh, is founded there in the late '60s. You know, as part of that that same you know big complex upheaval in theological education. But that's not as immediately relevant to what we're talking about right now. So. Uh, the main picture that he's responding to is that mainline seminary world so uh, David I mean are there any other uh, I think you know Michael just gave us uh, a David Grubbs level historical background I mean is there anything that David Grubbs would add to that
0: nothing whatsoever we are so far away from my wheelhouse that I can't see my wheelhouse from here so I'm I'm just sitting here learning y'all
2: well, that's great. Well, David, we'll, we'll let you dig into the book proper then. Um, you know, granting that liberation is the main drive for Cohn's theology, and, you know, that's fairly evident in the ed- introduction in the first chapter, the authority for this this theology's project is black experience. So how does Cohn situate scripture, art, history, and other sources for Christian theologi- theological work, and what particular notion of truth Emerges from this from these relationships.
0: Well, as you say, uh, the the beginning is is black experience, and in the second the the major first major heading of his second chapter called "Speaking the Truth" is black experience as a source of theology. Um, and I'm just going to read some quotes. Let him speak for himself. Truth in this sense is. Black truth, a truth disclosed in the history and culture of black people. This means that there can be no black theology which does not take the black experience as a source for its starting point. Black theology is a theology of and for black people, an examination of their stories, tales, and sayings, an investigation of the mind into the raw materials of our pilgrimage, telling the story of how we got over. For theology to be black, it must reflect upon what it means to be black. So he's taken, just just in those sentences, he's taken several different runs at what it means for for uh, black experience to be a source of theology. Um, first, the notion that in the hist- it's both history and culture, right? So um, he's he's going to talk about uh, both events that have happened in the past leading up to now, but also the shape of lived experience now in its um both both at the personal level and at the level of 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 cultural structures um so so both of those things are black experience uh he sees that there is no black theology that doesn't take not just take black experience into account but take it as a starting point um it also has to reflect upon what it means to be black, so it, it both begins from the black experience and the theology itself looks back at the black experience and speaks to it to define it. Um, and then this, this, uh, this sentence, it must uncover the structures and forms of black experience because the categories of interpretation must arise out of the thought forms of the black, black experience itself. So it's a it's it's not a beginning. It's not a source that sits over here separate from the thinker, who consults that source and then draws it into their project. Um, this is a project for people who are in that experience, and they begin from it. And the source is um, the source is the starting point in that way, but it is also. Uh, the project of black theology enables them to look back at the experience that is their starting point um, with a with a with a greater sense of clarity. So it's um, oh I'm I'm forgetting the term, but um, in some sense recursive or uh, it, it it sort of spirals, right? Yeah, re- reflexive is that what you're hunting for? Yeah, reflexive. That's what I mean. Reflexive. Uh, so. That's a uh, that's a dynamic that, that that runs throughout here. It's not that uh, you begin with an understanding of what that experience is and then move from that complete understanding to do theology, um, to work with scripture, for instance, um, but rather that you continue dynamically working working back. Um, uh, the the uh, he, he talks a, a good deal about what it's like to be, uh, in church in uh, in, in black uh, black churches, which is one of the um, one of the cultural structures that, that he sees as most important, as a source for black theology, but it's, and, and so he is he is drawing from that, uh, from uh, songs um, quotes from sermons. A great deal Uh, however he doesn't limit it to he doesn't limit the the black experience that is the source of theology is not just the churchly experience Uh, it's also the day-to-day experience and in particular the experience of being consistently systematically mistreated and taken advantage of um, of being consistently, well, as the title says, being consistently oppressed um, as, as a definitive trait uh, in, in that experience. So the way that that, uh, the way that that connects to Scripture is, he says, our study of uh, the importance of Scripture, uh, this is on, on page 31, uh, the importance of Scripture as a witness to Jesus Christ doesn't mean that black theology can therefore ignore the tradition of western christianity but that our study of the tradition must be done in light of the word disclosed in scripture as interpreted by black people so um a lot of the ways that i'm going to approach scripture in being informed by uh, the tradition that i would uh that i would that i would consult um there's uh, the way Cohn presents it is not that the, the tradition that that I would consult is is, is unimportant. That's still important, It's still there. Um, but that's that's this third thing that is approached after the uh, the creation after the, the the creation of black theology through flowing out of the black experience in dialogue with Scripture. So, Scripture is something that is separate from that other tradition That, that um, there. So, in that source. Uh, the other big quote that's important here is on page 33. Black experience is a, is a source of truth but is not the truth itself. Jesus Christ is the truth. And thus stands in judgment over all statements about truth. Um,
1: a very bardian thing to say, it must be said.
0: He says a lot of bardian things. Um, uh, what was the uh, the quote? Just a, a few pages, uh, just a few pages before that, when he talks about uh, the black preacher um, making a sharp distinction between the words of the text and the word disclosed in the text.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty orthodox Bardianism, right? But he was trained as a Bardian, wasn't he, Nathan? Yeah,
2: his dissertation, in fact, was on Karl Barth.
1: So, I, I mean, I hope nobody's taking that as any kind of criticism, or I'm just I'm just drawing a connection. That's all.
0: Well, I, I think it's a really important connection, though, uh, because he one of the moves that he makes is to say, yes, the experience that um, the black theologian brings. Uh, by virtue uh, by virtue of being black to the job of theology yes it is different from scripture and as a source of truth it is not identical with the truth itself or the truth himself in this case Uh, however there is no truth he says there is no truth in Jesus Christ independent of the oppressed of the land their history and their culture and so he makes this move to say, yes, there's a distinction between between the black experience, a logical distinction between experience and the truth, Christ, uh, the ultimate truth, Christ, and scripture as witness to truth. But there's something specifically about the black experience that, uh, that aligns with those other sources in a way that he he argues, uh, I think quite explicitly, that other experiences don't. Um, I, w- I, I wish I had the quote in front of me. I think it might be from another chapter, and so it might be a spoiler, but he says, uh, he says something about uh, the black experience having a kind of, um, uh, a, a kind of alignment with, with what is axiomatic in scripture. Um, So that they they are not identical, but there's something about this experience that specially aligns you um, to reading scripture and detecting Jesus, who is the truth um, in that scripture, seeing the word behind the words. Um, This experience enables you to do that better, he claims.
2: Right. And this is a. Uh, characteristic of liberation theology more broadly, right? Uh, Both Cohn and Gutierrez, independent of each other, um, arrive at, you know, this emphasis on the God who takes sides. And it's no coincidence that sort of their Old Testament root uh, reaches back not to Genesis 1, but to Exodus 2. Uh, This is a God who hears and remembers the calls of those who are oppressed uh, and who moves in Egypt not to adjudicate, you know, impartially between Pharaoh and the Hebrews, but who takes the side of the Hebrews over against the powerful of the world uh, and, you know, liberates them, leads them to freedom, Uh, hence, you know, liberation theology. So I think you're absolutely right, David, that, I mean, uh, his project, and this is part of what uh, is offensive, you know, frankly, to a lot of mainline theology of the mid-20th century, uh, is to bring that... Uh, preferential option for the poor, to use uh, Gustavo Gutierrez's phrase, uh, to bear on the black experience. Uh, You know, the experience of Jesus uh, is not the experience of someone who is adjudicating fairly between the powers and principalities on one hand and the weak and the poor on the other, but it takes the sides of the poor over against the powers of the spiritual darkness, and I'm very willfully using uh, scriptural language here to indicate that, you know, as far as Cohn is concerned, and obviously theology is always logos, it's always a debatable proposition, uh, but within liberation theology, you know, that is simply the character of Scripture, uh, that Christ comes not to give the powers and principalities a fair hearing, but to dethrone them because they have become oppressive.
1: Right, And, And so it's not that black culture qua black culture has a special visionary power it's that black culture is shaped by the experience of being persistently oppressed and that experience of being persistently oppressed is what allows you to uh to see the gospel more clearly, is that is that accurate? Not not that there's no difference between black culture and say Latin American culture, or I mean, pick another pick another oppressed group. They they all have different flavors, but the the visionary power of black theology comes from black culture being a culture of the oppressed.
2: Yeah, that's about right. Uh, and interestingly, David, I mean, I, I was realizing as as I was prepping for this episode, this might have been why. Uh, listeners, if you were here a couple episodes and you heard us discuss Athanasius on the Psalms, uh, when he rendered the Babylonian captivity in terms of being oppressed by false teaching, that just fell on my ear weird, and I think it might have been because I'd been prepping James Cone while I was reading that.
0: Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
2: Well, Michael, uh, as a corollary to, you know, this emphasis on uh, black experience heresy takes on a very particular character in James Cone's thought. So since you and I have uh, sparred over heresy before, uh, how does Cone's notion of heresy relate to his larger theological project?
1: Well, he uses a definition of heresy that you have expressed before, which is to say that something is heretical if it keeps the church from being the church. And that definition assumes that you know what the church is. You have to have a pretty good essential notion of the church in order to say this is heretical because it it would make the church not the church. And in fact, Cone does know what the church is. Um, He says that, quote, any theologian who fails to place the question of oppression and liberation at the center of his or her work, has ignored the essence of the gospel. So the essence of the gospel is about oppression and liberation, which means the essence of the church is about oppression and liberation, which means if you have some piece of theology that is keeping the church from its business of liberating the oppressed, you've become a heretic. So later he says, this is page 35, any interpretation of the gospel in any historical period that fails to see Jesus as the liberator of the oppressed is heretical. Any view of the gospel that fails to understand the church as that community whose work and consciousness are defined by the community of the oppressed is not Christian and thus heretical. There's a lot to talk about in uh, in those two excerpts. First of all, the liberation he's talking about is presumably political liberation before all other things. So we're not talking, as far as I can tell, about some sort of spiritual liberation from the sins of gluttony or lust or pride. And, and I'm sure that now that I've said that, I'm sure that Cohn would say that I'm making a false distinction between political and spiritual liberation yeah
2: Um, i was i was gonna go there if you didn't michael and he'd probably be
1: right right because if 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 i'm an oppressor uh, which in some ways I, i probably am if i'm an oppressor and i'm freed of the spiritual uh the spiritual sin of pride that is also freeing the people whom i am oppressing because so the the liberation goes both ways but we need to focus on the the people who are openly politically oppressed second he, pos- he places that political liberation as the essence of the gospel. so it's not just something that has to be reckoned with by all theologies which I that is a um, that is a more moderate vision of this that every every account of the gospel needs to have some place for political liberation It, it goes beyond that it's saying this is the most important thing. And so I think you would have to say that in some sense the Apostles' Creed would thus be more or less heretical unless you somehow reinterpreted it to be about political liberation. But on the face of it, that's not what it's about. So not only is this necessary, it is the central thing. There is no way to talk about theology without talking about political liberation. Do you think I have that right, Nathan?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the, the second formulation, I think, is probably closer to Cone's than the first was.
1: And then finally... The oppressed have to be allowed to decide what the church should be. Uh, I I don't know what I think about that. It de- depends on what the church being um, defined by the community of the oppressed means. That's what that's his phrase. Defined by the community of the oppressed. Is it that they make the definition, or is it defined with reference to their needs? I would think that that if it were the the former it would make it very difficult to have any kind of non-political moral standards for the church it would it would reduce all of ethics to politics which there is a long history in western philosophy of doing so i mean maybe that's not a problem maybe i just need to think more aristotelianly the other problem i have is that he says that theology is more or less only subjective speech about God that tells us more about the person talking theologically than it tells us about God. And so my question is, what makes his standards of orthodoxy any different from that? And and that may not be an entirely fair question to ask because I know he, he addresses it a couple chapters later. So stay tuned. We haven't said the final word on on what theological language is about and how we can define orthodoxy and things like that
2: right right and I think Michael I mean that uh, account of things is is pretty accurate first of all Uh, and it is you know characteristic of this liberation theology project right Um, you know heresy on this notion uh, means taking the movement that Jesus started in a direction that Jesus wouldn't approve of and you know if liberation is the central core characteristic uh, and really, the essence of the work of Jesus in the world, then yeah, I mean you know any uh, project that you know counters that uh, is heretical. Now, my hunch would be, and this is only a hunch because I, I haven't read widely enough in James Cone's work uh, to have a, a particular you know knowledge of it. Uh, but my hunch is that he would say that you know the Apostles' Creed, because it is largely a distillation of the narrative that yields the liberation it's not itself heretical but when it becomes used as a as sort of the chief gatekeeper uh to keep people out then it can become heretical make, uh, that makes sense yeah i mean i mean but i mean do you think that i'm i'm giving him too much latitude and making him too much like me
1: but uh, well i mean I'm less well-read in James Cone than you are, so it's not for me to decide that. I, I mean, I could go along with him and say that any any account of the gospel that fails to reckon with the liberation of the oppressed, with, with political justice, is inadequate and maybe even woefully inadequate. But I, I don't know that I'm willing to say that political liberation is the essence of the gospel. It, it seems to me that it is something that belongs to the gospel, uh, but the gospel is about more than that.
2: Yeah, and I think that, you know, my own theology probably tra- travels in that direction, if you will. So I think that I can basically agree with you on that front. Um, David, I mean, I, I I know that you're probably not any better read in James Cone than Michael and I <laughs> is. But, but uh, and I just mangled grammar there. I apologize, listeners. But, um, you know, you have given us some, you know, very good things to think about over the course of our 10 years podcasting about heresy as it has manifested itself historically. I mean, is there anything that you would add to, you know, his notion of heresy, you know, from the perspective of, you know, the long history of Christian orthodoxy and, you know, concerns with heresy?
0: Well, the the first... The first point would be just to to amplify something that you said, Michael, when you were talking about the Apostles' Creed, um, which is which is that by by this standard, and he's and he's not he's not ambiguous and he's not waffling. Um, I mean, he 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 comes out and, and, and quite boldly says, uh, anyone who does not see the political liberation of the oppressed as the central point of the gospel is heretical. Um, if that's the case, then then the Apostles Creed, um, unless unless you you are radically rereading it, and I'm not even sure what clause <laughs> we would we would have to radically reread in order to find that that statement in it. then the Apostles Creed is itself um, uh, heretical through, through the omission of the central thing, and and I would say that if if you reflect on uh, the the history of the church that I know, the history of the church that I have access to, um, either James Cone is right, and pretty much all of the church history I know is the history of heretics, or James Cone is overstating it and maybe in somewhere, in some other place, he, he dials back the rhetoric because he's not writing in, in a moment of quite so pointed contention. Um, I, I thought that that was helpful, um, Nathan, when you brought up the fact that um, this book is being written um, at a point in time where he is, he is exchanging fire with critics and so yes yes and so maybe he's ramped up the volume some um maybe he's 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 dialing this up in in ways that he dials back later but i don't know i haven't i i have not read the corpus this is literally all the james cone that i have ever read and i'm trying to read it with the grain all right i'm trying to i'm trying to understand him his own terms before i start you know picking it up and throwing things um but reading it with the grain, it it does seem as if most of church history that I know falls athwart his standard, and um, as as I understand it, orthodoxy has um, not just to do with um, reading scripture rightly, but also with looking at the wisdom of the gen of past generations, and. Um, making a new thing central, or making a new thing essential, is, uh, is always a, a dicey thing um, in, that, in that view of orthodoxy, as a kind of long conversation, um, long contention over the centuries. Uh, the other point that I would make is that if you look at the history, again, the history of the church that I have access to, it actually seems to be a long retreat from the use of political force in order to impose the ethical will of the church on the society. Um, Not ramping it up but ramping it down. Um, You know we have uh, in the fourth century we have the conversion of Constantine and the Roman emperors on the side of the church. We have the uh, the the church uh, attempting to exercise control even over the kingdoms of, of Europe in in uh, the Middle Ages and asserting political power um, asserting uh, the 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 right to uh, impose the uh, to to orc- to organize society according to the church's ethical will um, but then in in the Enlightenment and in the modern era, the Church actually backs off of that to the point where, in you know, the, within this year, uh, the Pope declares uh, capital punishment itself the most uh, the most individual show of force um, in in a person's life as as off limits. Um, so it's uh, I mean to me, it seems almost as if the church has ret- has retreated from uh, that uh, the notion of direct action for social change over the over, over the course of history.
1: I don't know about that. I mean, there's a there's definitely an ebb and flow to it, and there's there's times when the church is more involved and less involved, but I, I think it's difficult to look at twenty eighteen. And say, well, yeah, the church—the church has the church backed off from political power. I—I I just I don't see a whole lot of evidence for that, but I—I I do see what you mean in, in the sense that the Catholic Church is—is is saying, is—is is withdrawing a little bit right now. Although at the same time, you've got Pope Francis writing encyclicals urging nations to do particular things about climate change. So yeah. I, the, the history of the church's political engagement is—is is not going to be easily charted.
0: You no, know, no, I, I, I can com- I, I completely agree with that. But the we we don't have are gangs of monks <laughs> roaming the streets of 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 Alexandria pulling down temples at the behest of bishops. Um you know, there 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 are exor- direct exercises of uh aggressive force that we that that we don't see um, the church using um, systematically in a sustained and kind of uh, sanctioned way uh, that that was apparent in early centuries I I I, I don't know if may, maybe maybe I need to Review my church history, and maybe even especially my contemporary church history. So among the things that I don't know a lot about is the role of the Catholic Church in um, the revolutionary settings of Central and South America. I don't. Yeah, I don't know much either. Um, I, I know that there's got to be some kind of relationship of the church to similar kinds of. Um, liberation and independence movements in sub-saharan africa over the course of the 20th century i don't know what those are um so yeah that's
1: i want to return to your other point if you don't mind about the the early church because i i agree with you that if if we have a vision of christianity that says well the first 300 years got the whole thing wrong i i you know that that smells like something to me But I do think you could look at the early church and say, I'm I'm looking up his his phraseology here, that the uh, the church should be, quote, defined by the community of the oppressed. Well, that's definitely true in the first century or two of the church. Right. I mean, the, the, the members of the church are themselves the oppressed. And so you could say you could say that they're definitely defining what the church should look like on the basis of that oppression. What you don't see a lot of from my, from my reading of church history in those early centuries is political solutions to those, that, that oppression. The, the sort of liberation they're talking about tends to come through more suffering. It, it, it tends to be a, a, a liberation in the afterlife, a, a liberation of martyrdom right and and so i i think maybe if we expanded what he's saying beyond political liberation which i there might be reason to do because he never explicitly says well we're only talking about political liberation here at that point i think you probably could look at the the first few centuries and say well yeah it is it is about liberating the oppressed and everybody essentially who is a christian in the first 200 years of the church is oppressed i mean in, in a in a really serious way um but not all. So, so maybe maybe that's a way to read it.
0: Yeah, but not all of the oppressed of the Roman Empire were Christian, and that that I think is. Um, I, am I reading am I reading Cone fairly to say that 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 ought to be, the thing that we should say, not just that Christians were oppressed, but that Christians actively sought to champion all of the oppressed in the Roman Empire, not just. The oppressed Christians,
1: which my understanding is they did right. I mean, at the at the very least, I'm thinking about um, Christian efforts to end Roman infanticide.
0: That yeah, absolutely.
1: I, I don't I don't really know what Christian treatment of slaves was like in the first 200 years, but I don't think it would be a stretch to imagine that Christians were against slave owning. Um, I think you you get some uh, some hints of that in the Book of Philemon. So I, without being a church historian, I don't, I don't want to say anything too uh, concretely, but i I sus- suspect if we looked back at that in an organized way, we might find that there's a little bit more political liberation in the early church than we imagine there is, um, even, if, even if a great deal of that is pointed toward martyrdom as opposed to some sort of uh, here and now liberation. Which, I mean, by the way, you'll, you'll notice when Cone talks about liberation, he couches it in uh, the language of heaven. So whatever kind of political liberation we're talking about, it is also connected to a post-mortem liberation.
2: Well, and it's connected to a notion that the justice of heaven should be, you know, reigning on earth or, you know, to, to quote Jesus, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes. Right. I think that might be the more immediate referent for heaven than the "go to heaven when you die" version. Uh, I think that you know it is this strong antithesis between the injustice of human systems and the justice that comes from heaven that he has in mind there. Um, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit out of order because our, our conversation is heading that way, guys. Because this is one of the one of the things that I I, I want to. Like David was saying, try to take Cone on his own terms, and this strong emphasis on liberation—I mean—strikes me as parallel, at least structurally, to some of what we see with Martin Luther. Right? With Luther, you've got a definite strain in the Scripture witness to the gratuitous initiative of God, right, sola gratia, and you know, for Luther, uh, anything that stands against that uh, becomes heretical. Uh, and it strikes me that I mean something similar is going on here. What Cone is picking up on is a strain within the Scriptures. I mean, with Moses, with Amos, with Hosea, with Jesus, for that matter, and with Philemon, right? Uh, that you know the ultimate destiny of the earth and all that is upon it, right, is to be governed by the justice of God. I mean, it's not a coincidence that you know the the New Jerusalem doesn't go up into heaven, but it comes down from heaven to earth at the very end of Revelation, right? So, I mean, entertain this theory with me, guys, and tell me if I'm, you know, completely off target, because you guys are good at telling me when I'm completely off target. Uh, You know, I see Cone as grabbing an undeniable strain within scriptures and making it the Sola, you know, Sola Liberatione, instead of Sola Gratia. I mean, is that am i oversimplifying his project or am i you know maligning luther here or uh how am i wrong guys
1: i maybe what we're asking here is is whether cone is a radical because in the 16th century context luther was definitely a radical and the use of the solas is a totalizing move and totalizing discourse is radical right
2: right to the point where you know his famous line about the you know the 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 book of James being in a a right straw epistle or an epistle of straw, or whatever the phrase is right, right? Well,
1: yeah, right, and and talk about radicalism going too far and getting you into trouble, and yet i and you know, I think we can we can all find lots in Luther's theology to admire and and the same goes for Cohn. I think he is a radical, I think he goes too far for me, but I appreciate his going too far because it pushes against things that I might be too complacent in believing and ultimately i think both of their radicalisms are born out of pragmatism they're 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 very concrete luther and Cohn are both concerned with the experience of being oppressed and with giving power back to the people who are oppressed luther sees the german peasant tricked into building cathedrals out of concern for his dead loved ones and he hands the bible to this peasant and tells him not to let the roman catholic church interpret it for him and that has a lot of consequences that I don't think Luther would have foreseen. But I think the, the, the initial impulse that comes out of is, is, a, is a really, really good one. Cohn is undergoing a similar operation. White theology has ignored or suppressed black experience. Cohn hands African-Americans the Bible, tells them not to let white theologians interpret it for him. Um, and if Protestants are made uncomfortable by that operation, we might want to think about why we're not also made uncomfortable by Luther giving white people that same freedom. Do you know what I mean?
2: Or German people at any rate. Yeah. I, so, <laughs> so, I
1: mean, I, I ultimately, I'm not sure Cohn is any more radical than Luther. It's just that as Protestants, we followed Luther into his, his radical position, and, and so we're, we're less aware of how radical it is.
2: And David, I want to give you a chance to respond to this because you often play Luther to my Erasmus. Yeah. So I mean, am I getting Luther wrong here?
0: Um I don't know I, I, mm. I, I see I see the way that your that, that your comparison is working. And I, I think it holds together um in in the sense that uh Cone believes that he has read uh, in, in his reading of scripture, he has seen this s- strong through-line that's so fundamental to reading the Bible rightly that if you compromise it, you compromise the ability to read the Bible rightly. Um, and that, that um, corresponds to uh, the, sola gra- the sola gratia principle, um, uh, the sola Christus principle christ alone uh the sola fide principle um the, for, for luther those are um not verses he finds here and there but he believes that in his reading of scripture um he is he is convinced that there is this strong through line um that that is built around those principles that to uh ignore them or to relativize them is to is to misread the whole
2: and not even relativize them, even to set them in the presence of anything that detracts from them, even one iota, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the that that's really the radical moment in on the bondage of the will, right? If if you know the human effort does you know, and I, I can't remember Luther's phrase. It's so wonderful, uh, even if it gives me the heebie-jeebies. But even if the human effort does a little bit, then God's effort does nothing
0: right it's it's the sense that that any works is no grace uh, yeah because yeah. for him uh, it, it, it is it is all a gift or it is earned it's you know it's 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 a it's a binary it's not um, th- those are not supplemental or um, cooperating principles it's one thing or it's the other thing um, Cone. Maybe he's making a move similar to that, um, but uh, in the ways that he phrases it, it's not so much that he's putting liberation and something else. I I don't know what that other thing is, but it seems to be anything that treats liberation as not the central main thing. Even if you wanted to say that that the gospel has implications that would lead towards the liberation of the oppressed in, in, in political systems. Um, you've offset the liberation too far for him. Um, for him, it's, it's, it is the main trajectory that makes sense of the whole. Um, so, so I, that, that I guess would be the main, one of the main ways that it's different from what Luther does. He doesn't have a main, uh, other principle that it's in tension with. It's just, uh, he doesn't want anything else threatening it, whatever it it might be. Um, Nothing else relativizing it, nothing else um, setting it aside so that it's one of a series or um, the next thing after a first principle.
2: That makes some sense. That makes some sense. Well, David, uh, we've already talked a little bit about uh, Cone in the Bible, so I'm going to forego that for right now. I do want to talk a little bit about uh, the nature of theological language Michael's already pointed to it but I want to talk specifically about uh, you know the influence of Feuerbach and Marx uh, in the midsection of of our reading today Um, you know I'll I'll just put it to you you know in, in straightforward terms I mean we've been talking about black experience black art you know black oppression uh, what do a couple of nineteenth-century Germans have to do with black theology? Yeah.
0: Well, uh, he's he's already uh, been integrating a twentieth-century a, a Swiss gentleman, so why not nineteenth-century Germans? Um, the uh, the influence of Feuerbach and Marx, and and sorry, not not influence, like he's he's directly referencing and building on them uh, is. A chapter called "The Social Context of Theology." Uh, Feuerbach uh, rather famously uh, critiques, uh, ultimately critiques theologians as uh, those who project their 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 images of what is most perfect in the human onto the ultimate. Um, uh, "Quote: Man cannot get beyond his true nature. He may indeed be means of the." He may indeed by means of the imagination conceive individuals of a so-called higher kind, but he can never get loose from his species. His nature, a being's understanding, is its sphere of vision. As far as thou seest, so far extends thy nature." So the idea that um, uh, theologians are, uh, Feuerbach seems to to say that theologians are always projecting. Theology is is anthropology. Theology simply tells you about the human. Um, Cohn pulls back from that and treats Feuerbach's um, more uh, stronger claim as, as a danger of theology, that theologians are constantly in danger of turning their speech about God into speech about um, speech about themselves. They have these, um, socially situationally, um, uh, contingent notions of what is good and what is perfect and what is right. Um, so that we say that God is just, and as soon as we use that word, um, what, what do we, you know, what truck backs up to that word just and then fills it up with examples and principles, right? Um, and those things are, uh, uh, w- we're always in, in danger of, of those things deriving uh, from ourselves and not from uh, something beyond us, something transcendent. Feuerbach seems to say that there is no transcendent, um, but uh, Cohn wants to have a transcendent, but Feuerbach uh, is then pointing out a threat, the threat that religion is a projection. Um, Marx talks about the way that religion, um, both uh, imposes, uh, imposes ideology, imposes ways of thinking about society um, and community, uh, and it, it, it guards and enforces the interests of the ruling class. Um, that is, uh, religion is is this thing that keeps the people passive so that they can be uh, so that they can be ruled. And the taboos of the gods always seem to be mysteriously aligned with what the princes want. Um, And again, Cone sees this uh, and pulls back from Marx's claim and says, now this is not always true of theology, but it is constantly a threat. And inevitably, uh, theologians will work out of their social context and will be influenced by... uh, influenced by their social context. Um, I did appreciate uh, one, one things he, uh, one thing he notes. Um, he, he walks through the, 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 the history of American theologians and their relationship to um, emancipation uh, and the slavery question. And uh, on page 49, he's this, he seems to be speaking um, speaking back to Marx, um, modifying the way that he appropriate Marx. And he points to, uh, theologians who openly condemned slavery. He names them and then says Weld and other white abolitionists should be commended for their courage in taking a stand against the cultural and theological ethos of their time. They are concrete examples that social existence is not mechanical and deterministic. The Gospel grants people the freedom to transcend their cultural history and to affirm a dimension of universality common to all peoples. So that's the way that he, he appropriates Marx and Marx's observation about the ways that religion can simply impose um, the, the, social, uh, uh, the social goals of the rulers on those who are ruled. But that's not necessarily the case, and in fact, there's something about the gospel that can permit, um, that could permit someone thinking in line with the gospel to break free of, uh, of of that that influence. Um, the best comparison uh, that that I could think of uh, at, at that point is he he uh, he drawing on Marx. Um, treats the social context as having a similar kind of um nigh deterministic power uh, to the way uh, the middle ages thought about astrology namely that there are these things there's something about the stars that influences our 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 humors our temper and so forth Uh, but the reason particularly the reason aided by grace can choose to do things other than what the stars drive us towards so that um the uh, the social powers uh and their and their ideology um is the those those are the stars of our universe and yes they are working on us all the time um but it is possible for a reason aided by grace in in, in cone's example the gospel to to transcend that. There's there's another principle at work than just the the uh, the manipulative uh, social context. So um, I, I I like his way of balancing of making use of Feuerbach and Marx, but also stepping back from it because otherwise he could have just relativized his entire project. Um, and that, that, I think, is the threat of using them as sources, but then I think he sidesteps it in that way. Do you think it's successful the way that... Uh, do you think he's successful in avoiding the pitfall?
2: I mean, I think so, just from the frame of my own experience. I mean, one thing that I'm sure I will return to as we discuss this for two more episodes uh, is that my own theological training as an undergrad and as a seminarian is so thoroughly influenced by liberationist movements you know i I was in seminary from 1999 to 2002 and before that i was an undergrad from 95 to 99 so this book and the liberation movement more generally had already had a generation to influence the way that you know theology gets taught right so uh the notion that uh that liberation always has a political element and you will note it's not as radical as as cones vision by any means but you know the the insistence that the political is one facet of what it means for God to unleash freedom on the world has always been part of my education so it, it's interesting that you know in some ways the white religion that he talks about in this book is unrecognizable to me if you're looking at my Seminary training, even if I do, you know, sometimes spot it in, you know, very individualistic accounts of piety that I, I encounter elsewhere. I, I know that's not a direct answer to your question, David, but I th- I think it's interesting that, um, again, you know, this book in 1975 is is not breaking new ground so much as it is, you know, defending the new ground that was broken five years prior. But then, 20 years later, and you know, now sitting here, you know, 40 years after this book, you know, is, is on the shelves. Um, it's it's become a part of the atmosphere. It's become a part of theological education. I think, um, Michael, I'm I'm rambling. I mean, is there anything intelligent to say about this?
1: Well, the the, the piece of Marx about religion being the opiate of the masses, I think to understand why that's not necessarily the case is to understand what he's saying about the church needs to be defined by the oppressed. So 19th century white slave masters tell their slaves, you know, if you you just bear it out now, everything will be made right in heaven. That is the opiate of the masses. That's exactly what Marx is talking about. The otherworldly fixations of the early church it's not coming from the ruling class it's coming from within the community of the oppressed. And so it's liberatory. I, I, I think Cone, he doesn't say that directly as far as I can tell, but I think what he says here as a whole functions as a really nice rejoinder to that chestnut from Marx. Mm-hmm.
2: And I, and more recently, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of the ways that uh trip Fuller over at homebrew Christianity has in a lot of ways, reappropriated the language of resurrection uh, precisely to insist upon God's justice, right? Because uh, Tripp is undeniably an activist when it comes to uh, politics and theology, but he still insists on resurrection because he says that for God to leave behind all those who have died because of the oppression of the unjust and tell them, well, sorry, you just came at the wrong moment. Uh, would be to render God unjust, so therefore resurrection becomes a necessity for God's justice. So again, I mean, I, I think that, you know, Trip Fuller, you know, who's um, a voice who's very active right now, is sort of incorporating what Michael just narrated a, a concern for the oppressed that marshals resurrection precisely as part of that political theology. I like it. Well, Michael, I want to wrap things up, and today's section of the book, of course we're going to do two more episodes on this book, listeners, but today's section of the book ends with four principles of theology that Cohn sets forth as indispensable for theology today. Michael, what are those principles, and to what extent do they point towards the unity, liberty, and charity that our friends over at the Christian Feminist Podcast remind us to pursue?
1: So, so the four principles, uh, one, all Christian theology is political and social. Two, theology has to be prophetic, which means that it's not content to repeat the missives of an earlier era, including even the biblical era. Uh, three, theology can't ignore tradition either. And four, theology is always, quote, a word about the liberation of the oppressed and humiliated. I think points two and three are pretty spot on. I think they're undeniable. It's, it's, this is a place where I find Cone to be very moderate in a way. Uh, in that he is demanding both that theology be connected to the past and that it not be entirely bound up to it. And in that sense, I think numbers two and three has to be prophetic and it can't ignore tradition. That definitely promotes unity, liberty, and charity. I am less sure about points one and four because his vision of political theology is so totalizing because he's not moderate, essentially. Um, But I'm also aware of the degree to which it's easier for me to say that because I'm not a member of an oppressed group in any meaningful way. So I don't know. (laughs) Unity is about the essentials, right? Unity and the essentials. But what happens if you can't come to an agreement about what the essential thing is? So the, the difference between me and Cone, at this stage in the book anyway, I haven't finished it, is that I, I believe justice is an essential piece of the gospel. It's just not the singular one. And sometimes I wonder if, if Cone really does think it's the only piece of the gospel that matters. Um, and because of that, it's very difficult for me to figure out what to do with him, which I suppose means I need to respond in charity and hope that he would do the same to me.
2: grubs, what hast thou to add?
0: I am in, I'm in Michael's boat here. I like two and three and one and two for exactly the things that you just said, Michael. Um, I hesitate. And part of that, and I don't, maybe I think something, something you said um, maybe helped crystallize this. He keeps using the term liberating the oppressed and the humiliated one of the things that he doesn't have, that he doesn't talk about, um, is nonetheless very important language scripturally um, in the Gospels, in the Psalms, in all of the places that are home base for him, uh, which is the righteous. The only thing that seems to be characterizing those whom God defends is that they are oppressed.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's it, a good point. Is
0: that they are humiliated, um, which means that what defines those whom those whom God uh, sides with and advocates for, and the ultimate tel- telos of the gospel, and even the entire universe, because this is his eschatology, is God recogn- uh, rec- rescues the oppressed. Um, who is in that category is exclusively defined by the powers of the world who do the oppressing um so if if i'm if i'm to be saved if i'm to be one for whom the gospel speaks um i i guess all i can do is just sort of look around and find the closest oppressed person and go go identify with them in their oppression regardless of of what it's for or what or, or their th- the the whole sense of 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 individual covenant faithfulness of particular people, um, and communities seems to be lost here if it's just reduced to God saves the oppressed and so, and so advocate for them if if that's all it is, um it becomes it becomes very at the mercy of this this kind of negative definition who the powers of the world beating up on and that's about all you can say um but i think the scripture has more to say about what we ought to do and be positively good than than just see where the oppression is
1: and and i think maybe you could say scripturally that it's easier to be righteous when you are oppressed that there there's something about being poor in spirit to use jesus's terms that that make it easier to be righteous but i i agree with you that righteousness needs to come in somewhere
2: and it's interesting because in the generation since this book um theology has tended to incorporate both of those poles david so it's, it's interesting i mean i and I'm realizing hearing you guys talk about this because you didn't go to seminary, uh, that I am reading a lot of Walter Brueggemann and, you know, theologians who came after 1975 back onto Cone, whereas you all are taking the text, you know, in its very raw power as it appears on the page, right? So I, th- this has been a helpful exercise for me because, you know, uh, when I read that, you know, all I was thinking of, well, you know, of course, the liberation of the oppressed has to come. I mean, you you get those Hebrews out of Egypt, and then you can get your Ten Commandments. But you don't give them the commandments first.
0: Yeah, but there don't seem to be any commandments here, except for the the only commandment that he ever quotes is. Don't oppress the stranger in your land.
2: Right, right. <laughs> and like I said, I, I and I think that that dynamic, David, is something that the 42 years of theology since this book have definitely emphasized, Uh, and you know, I wonder whether uh, you know, that's why I didn't see that uh, tension here, because I am incorporating those theologies into this, so I'm I'm not saying you're wrong here, I'm saying you're probably reading it uh, you know, closer than I am, precisely for that reason.
0: Well, I... I, I hope that's true because I'm trying, I'm trying to be I'm trying to be fair to what it is. I mean, there are ways in which he's rubbing me raw. Um, and I'm sure over the next few episodes we're going to talk about that. But I want to start off first by hearing what he has to say. Um, but
1: yeah,
2: that makes good sense. Well, listeners, we are going to hear more of what uh, James Cohn has to say next week. Uh, but because I am a, a critter of habit, uh, I'm still going to ask, as if I don't know, Michael, what are we talking about next week?
1: We're talking about the next 75 pages of The God of the Oppressed, which I think is through Chapter 7.
2: Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about right. So so listeners, in the meantime, uh, email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Let us know uh, what you're appreciating, what you're hearing that's uh, troubling you, Uh, Also find us on Facebook, find us at uh, ChristianHumanist.org. And of course, if you can leave us a review at iTunes, those five-star reviews, get our name out there, get more people in the conversation, and that's what we're interested in. I should add, and I always forget to do this, also tell people about our show. If you know someone who would be interested in uh, people who are, you know, not trained in liberation theology in any targeted way, trying to dig into this nonetheless... You know, let them know about this episode if you know of other episodes of ours that they might find interesting. Word of mouth is a great way to spread the word. The Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. And in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger.